You are listening to content from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. For more information, you can find us on the web at ChristOurHopeAnglican.org. And now, here's today's message. All of the rain that we've had recently has made for a particularly green spring in Fort Collins. Um, my family went hiking this weekend again, and we went around Eagle's Nest open space, um, which it's a nice little loop that leads down along a river, and it kind of half of it's on a ridge, and half of it comes back up through a valley. They, they share the open space with ranchers, so you kind of have to move cows out of the way sometimes. Um, but it's just this brilliant green stretching all the way up to the foothills and, and along the foothills. Um, and it's, it's fun to get to hike in that. And I am glad that our liturgical colors finally match the display that God has put on across the foothills. But the green in here is going to last uh, long after the city and the mountains fade again to brown. We're in that long stretch of the calendar known as ordinary time, the period between Pentecost and Advent where there are no major church holidays to mark the passing of our life together. In fact, it's the need to distinguish the weeks from one another that gives the season its name. We don't call it ordinary time because it's unremarkable, that it's somehow common or less holy. The name comes because we use the ordinal numbers, like first, second, and third, to keep track of what Sunday it is. So this is the second Sunday after Pentecost. Next week is the third Sunday after Pentecost. And then we have the fourth Sunday after Pentecost. And I'm not going to keep going because it goes all the way up until the 26th Sunday after Pentecost, which would also be Christ our King Sunday, which is the last Sunday of ordinary time, before we then start a whole new church year as we move into the season of Advent. The long, steady nature of this season is actually a special gift that we have in the church. As we count the weeks together, we have the opportunity to remember the constancy of God's grace. He is no less present to us in this long march of ordinary time than he is in the feasting of Easter and Christmas, or in the fasting of Advent and Lent. Just as he is no less present in our daily lives when we leave these weekly gatherings and go back to our time with families and the work that we have to do, God is with us there. Ordinary time is a time for us to practice the discipline of Christian discipleship, what Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction. A great deal of our lives happens on days that are not particularly spectacular, days that don't stand out from another. We just have one day coming after the next, and they look much alike, and yet in each one, God's mercies and God's grace are new. We need seasons like this one where we can remember that we are committed to following Jesus on that path of discipleship, not only through the highs of life and not only through the lows of life, but through the many days in between, where life just sort of marches on, but God is still with us. God is still present with us. And so, over the next seven weeks, we're going to start off the summer with a a short sermon series where we'll be looking at aspects of the ordinary Christian life that are found in the Psalms, that are important for us to remember as we set forth 
on not just this long season, but our lifelong walk of discipleship, where day after day we are committed to following Jesus. And so we're going to begin today, as I mentioned when we were reading the psalm together, in Psalm 130, where we are going to look at the mercy and the forgiveness that is offered to us through God. But before we can get to the mercy of God, we must begin with the psalmist in the deep. The first line of Psalm 130 says, Out of the deep I have called to you, O Lord. The deep is a reference to the sea, a place of chaos and a source of fear in Hebrew imagery. And if that doesn't make sense to you because you love the sea, don't think of a vacation at the beach. Think of being stranded in the midst of the ocean, where you're adrift with no land in sight, where the waves and the wind are the only reality that are visible to you. Everything's shifting, nothing staying the same, nothing constant. Then you can understand that fear of the sea, that sense of chaos that comes when you think of yourself in the midst caught up in that storms and waves that happen. This is the deep that the psalmist is referring to. It's a terrifying place, really, from which rescue seems almost beyond hope. And most of you have probably experienced the deep at some point. And I don't imagine that any of you have been adrift in the ocean. If you have, I'd like to hear your story. But when you are scared because of a medical diagnosis that you've received, for you or for a loved one, that can be the deep. When you've lost a job and aren't sure how you're going to provide for your family, that can be the deep. Or when you or a loved one is caught up in the web of addiction and you can't see any way out, that can be the deep. Or maybe it's when you look at the injustice throughout our culture and you long for equity and justice, you long for things to be set right, but you don't see any way that it can actually happen seems impossible to be rescued, that can be the deep. Sometimes, you just might just feel overwhelmed for no particular reason at all. There's not some event that sparks it off, it's just that life itself seems overwhelming, incomprehensible. That is part of the deep. The deep is the place where the chaos and brokenness of the world threaten to rise up and overwhelm us. It's the place where that curse that is proclaimed upon the earth at the, at when Adam and Eve took that fruit, which Jared read for us this morning, when that seems like the biggest reality that we can face, and it seems like more than we can possibly handle. Because of that, there's a sense in which we're all caught up in the deep, whether we're feeling it right now or not. It's not just a matter of your emotional response to what's going on. It's part of the objective reality of our situation that we live in a world that is filled with sin and brokenness, and it's all around us, and there's no way that we can escape it ourselves. Death lurks around every corner. Our politicians offer false promises of salvation, some mirage of hope 
on the horizon, but when we get there, it's just more sea and wind. The greedy exploitation of humankind has marred the natural beauty of our world. Our relationships with one another are filled with hurt. There are systemic injustices that seem impossible to solve without introducing some new injustice. And all of this is true whether you feel it at any given moment or not. In fact, one of the problems with the deep is sometimes it feels like there's too much to feel. Like I can't even actually connect with what's going on in the world because it's just too much. If I look out at it, it's overwhelming. The deep is all around with no way for us to escape. It's too big. We can't navigate our way out of these waters. And so our only hope is in God. Only he can save us. Only he is big enough to draw us out of this. There's, there's no one else is going to come to rescue us. Only he can break the bonds of sin and the terror of death. And so we cry with the psalmist, as in Psalm 130, Out of the deep have I called unto you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. But there's a problem that the psalmist runs into, even as he cries out to God for help. As we wish and desire for freedom from the effects of sin, we come to the realization that we, too, are culpable. We're part of the very problem from which we need rescue. Which of you can claim to be without sin? I'm glad that no one raised their hand. Because 1 John says that anyone who claims to be without sin is a liar. So not only are we caught in the chaos, we are agents of chaos ourselves. Every little lie that we tell, every moment that we feel greed or envy, every time we objectify a fellow human being or deny God the honor that he is due for the gifts that he has given us, we contribute to the destruction of the world through sin and death, no less than Adam and Eve did when they fell in that first sin. We desperately need rescue, but none of us deserves it. The psalmist cries out to the Lord with this exact problem. He says, oh, if you, Lord, were to mark what is done amiss, O oh, Lord, who could abide it? Not me. Not you. And this is not to say that every bad thing that happens to you is a direct consequence of your own sin. No one could stand up under that burden. It doesn't even mean that you're intentionally adding to the chaos. You may be doing your best to walk a righteous life, to, to follow the rules that will, that will add to the order of the world rather than the chaos of the world, but each of us is, voluntarily or not, a participant in the very systems of sin from which we wish to be rescued. And so there's this question that the psalmist has, how can we hope to be rescued from the sea when it's all that we have ever known? when it has soaked to our very bones, when we belong in the sea more than we belong anywhere else. 
even if you take me out of it, will I carry this with me for my whole life? Will I bring the deep with me if you lift me out? And the psalmist, of course, points us to the answer as well. Our hope is in the mercy of the Lord. It's our only hope that we have for rescue from this sea. This is the entry point into the Christian life. None of us can come to God for the first time except by his mercy. But it's also something that is important as we continue to walk in the Christian life. None of us ever outgrows the need for the mercy of God. The psalmist is not writing as someone who's discovering a new relationship with God. He's writing as someone who is part of the covenant community, and he still looks and says, I know that I am a sinful being, I am in the deep, I am of the deep, and all I can hope for is your mercy. Every time that he looks around and sees the muck of the world, the mire that we're caught up in, and says, I am a part of this, it is a reminder again that God is faithful still. Our dependence upon the mercy of God is the foundation of the ordinary Christian life. It's the foundation of our life as we walk day after day, as we keep track of these days that we follow Jesus. This is where our life begins is in the mercy and forgiveness of God. It's why every week when we gather together, confession is part of our liturgy, because we are dependent upon the mercy of God. It's why in this season, we have added the prayer of humble access back into our Eucharistic liturgy, where before we come to the table, we will say, we do not presume to come to this table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your abundant and great mercies. Because it's a reminder that continually, every day, we are dependent upon the mercy of God. We center our lives around this truth, that our salvation is dependent upon the mercy of God, and that it is something that we can depend upon. The mercy of God is not fickle or uncertain. It is no mirage on the horizon offering a false hope. The psalmist doesn't come to God wondering if he's going to show mercy this time. Will your mercy endure the latest onslaught of my sin? No. He declares that mercy is part of God's fundamental nature. There is mercy with you. Therefore you shall be feared. We come to God in hope, in reverence, because he has mercy. The mercy of God is greater than your sin. It's greater than the sin of the world. It's greater than all of the chaos around us. The great expanses of the deeps cannot exhaust or overwhelm the mercy of God. And when we remind ourselves of this, when we cling to this truth, it produces trust in God. And when we have trust in God, when we have faith in his nature that he is a God who offers mercy, it produces hope. 
we no longer need to be frightened by the wind and the waves. Instead, we wait for God with hopeful expectation. As the psalmist puts it, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits for him. In his word is my trust. My soul waits for the Lord. More than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. His eyes are no longer on the deep around him. They are on the horizon looking for rescue, and he's confident that it will come because he knows of the mercy of the Lord. The frightening situation that you find yourself in today, or that you find yourself in tomorrow, or some other day, on this walk of discipleship is not the ultimate reality. It does not have, sin does not have the final word. God's mercy is greater. It's greater than cancer. It's greater than addiction. It's greater than our nation's sin. It's greater than all of the injustices in the world. God's mercy is greater. This is the hope that forms us, and not just as individual disciples of God. This is the hope that forms us into a community of God. You are not alone in the deep waiting for rescue. Our trust in God's mercy creates this body. It creates the church. The last two verses of Psalm 130 turn from individual hope to the hope of the nation, recognizing that it is the same hope that he feels on an individual level that forms the nation of Israel, the covenant community called out of all the other nations. O Israel, trust in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is plenteous redemption, and he shall redeem Israel from all their sins. Our hope in the mercy of the Lord is why we are gathered here today. It's why this church is named Christ our hope. Because we look to the cross as the place where God's mercy and our salvation are on clear display. And we gather together into the people of God because of that. Which tells us again of what it means to be the church, of what it means to walk together through this Christian life where we step day after day as disciples of Jesus. A fundamental part of who we are and what we do when we gather together is to remind one another of the hope that we have. We do this through our worship together, the songs that we choose, the words that we read, the gospel that we proclaim in the midst of us when we walk out there. All of this is part of declaring the hope that we have. When I was in college, the non-denominational liturgical church that I was a part of, before they'd read their gospel reading every, every week, um, would say, this is the gospel, the story of God and our hope. Those words have still formed and shaped me as I think about what it is to proclaim the gospel. We walk out in the midst of there to remember that we are not adrift without hope, but hope is in the very center of our community. It's the very center of who we are and why we are gathered together. And it's not only on Sunday mornings that, and what we do here that we work to proclaim that hope. We tell one another stories of God's faithfulness. I've mentioned this before, but one of the joys of being a pastor is listening to your stories. 
when you let me into that with hints of God's hope? Or when you tell me when you're in the midst of the deep and you're frightened and you give me the opportunity to remind you of God's mercy and of the hope that we have. It's why we gather together in small groups as part of our community so we have more space and room to tell those stories. It's why we get together when there's no formal church thing going on, is we want to continue to be people who live life together, who walk according to this word, that Jesus Christ is our hope, and he is the one who has displayed to us the mercy of God. And it's not just a message for ourselves. The church is a place where we can stand and proclaim hope to the world. And this is so different than what happens in the world that gets so caught up in fear. We have no reason to fear because we depend upon the mercy of God, which is inexhaustible. And it also allows us to approach things in a different way than the world. If you've been paying any attention at all to American politics, you'll know that there's a lot of finger pointing that goes on. Shocking. I've told you something brand new that you didn't know. People are so concerned about finding others who are culpable, others who can be blamed. They don't want to point to themselves and their own part in injustice. But we can declare sin without fear. Including our own sin, we can declare without fear. We can take a stance where we look at systemic injustice and we say, yes, we have been part of that because sin is part of what it means to be human right now. But also, we don't point to that as the be-all and end-all. It doesn't just become about finger-pointing or making the right person feel bad so you can manipulate them into doing what you want. It becomes a way for us to proclaim that we know that God's mercy is greater than the sin. That we can be rescued, but not by our own power not by trying to make something happen, but because we depend upon the power of the Lord, there is actual hope. Because the church is the bride of Christ, and we've been washed clean. There's a sense in which we're still in the deep, but there's another sense in which we have already been pulled out of it. We look forward to that day when that is made perfect but we live in the already and the not yet. We live in the sense that already we have been washed clean. Already we have been able to put on white robes. Already we've been scrubbed and we don't have that sea salt scent on us anymore. That's not who we are. We're a people who have been made pure. We're a people that not only hope in the midst of chaos, for that eventual redemption of God, we look back to the cross and say, it has begun. And he has lifted me up and set my feet on dry land. We are to be a place that is an island for weary travelers. Those who think they can't tread water for, more, for one moment more should find their rest here. We have freedom from sin, where we say this is not the ultimate reality. This is not what is the most important thing about me right now. This is not what dominates my view and my horizon. Instead, the church itself has been raised up 
on the foundation of Christ, on the rock of Christ, to be an island and a haven in the midst of the sea of chaos as we look forward to that day when the new heavens and the new earth come and the new Jerusalem comes down and there is no sea any longer. This is the imagery of Revelation and why Revelation uses that imagery of there being no sea any longer. I don't think that it's literal for those of you who love the beach and are afraid of missing that in the new heavens and the new earth. But it's looking to this, that the chaos and the fear is gone. But we have a taste of it now, here, in this body, in the church. So let us carry that hope into the world. Let us tell our neighbors about that hope and invite them to stand with us on the rock of Christ. Let us tell one another of where we are. Remind each other that it may look like we're in the midst of this vast sea, but Christ is with us and we can stand up. And there is not fear any longer. Let us walk together in the mercy of God. This sermon is an audio ministry from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you are in the area and would like to learn more about how you can worship with us in person or online, please visit us on the web at www.christourhopeanglican.org.